Well, I hope everyone's having a good holiday season. Christmas is right around the corner as I'm making this intro. And of course, the best thing you can do for Christmas is check out the merch store. We've got some cool stuff there. You can check out a lot of art drawn by my friend Steve George. And 40% of that stuff goes to charity. So I'm not just shilling for myself. Uh, you go check that out. We've got some, uh, some cool new merch that I just threw up there. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. We have Hugh Mills back on the show. If you recall, he was on about two years ago. And he is the author of Low Level Hell, the book. Highly recommend you take a look at that, read through that. Uh, but he came back on, this time on the live show, and we had a great time chatting. And if you'd like to catch the live show, I'll put a link down to my YouTube channel. Of course, the video of that is still up. Unfortunately, he had some camera issues, so it's kind of like, uh, like a one out of every 30 frames of him moving around. But uh, audio was good. And I uh, had Barrett Knox on as well, and we just kind of chatting through and talking about his experiences in Vietnam and writing a book and some things he's working on in the future. Anyway, hope you guys enjoy the episode. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support. A big thanks to Patreon supporters. And for those of you that do stop by the merch store, it is greatly valued. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas. And uh, we received not just light automatic AK fire, it was heavy automatic and exploding type rockets or grenades or some shit. Welcome to the show that uh, every time we do it, it's the first time because we're always trying to figure it out. It's been like two months since we've done one and uh, there was a lot of fiddling around back here trying to remember buttons. Uh, Jake is with us in the background to help moderate. Uh, Barrett Knox is joining us again. He's been here before. And a man who needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway, uh, Colonel Retired Hugh Mills, uh, author of Low Level Hell, the book, which if you haven't read it, you should. Uh, mine's over there. I should have had it so I can wave it up in the air. Uh, former scout pilot, uh, flew in the Army, and he's been on the show before. I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode, but he's here with us tonight to talk about whatever we end up talking about. So welcome to the show, sir. Welcome back. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh Welcome to uh, central Missouri in the middle of the night where it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. How cold is it there? That's about uh, 36 degrees, I believe, right now. It was 21 this morning. Nope. Hey, we're getting down into here. the 20s in uh, L.A. tonight in lower Alabama. Oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah, I apologize for this feed. It looks like I'm jerking around, but uh, is, is the audio okay? The audio is perfect. Yeah, it's a little. Okay. It, it seemed like it started that way, then it got caught up. So it's probably just the uh, cold weather. No big deal. No problem. Uh, well, yeah, we were just kind of catching up before we started. Um, Barrett ha and uh, and Colonel Mills have met before many years ago. So Barrett, what what was that all about? Yeah, so Colonel Mills was gracious enough to come across the big pond. Uh, we were in Schweinfurt, Germany. This was Quarter Cav, part of the 1st Infantry Division. And uh, we had just gotten back from OIF-2. Uh, the first, I think that was the first full year-long deployment, or it was one of the first ones, but it was the first one for 1ID anyway. And we had just gotten back, and that was the uh, also... The when the big army decided to retire or reorganize the Kiowas out of the heavy divisions. So when we got back, you know, through a big party and uh, the air troops were being reflagged back to the U.S. and the, we were putting our aircraft on boats to go back to the depot 
to be refit and uh, sent back to the new unit. So that was around the two, 2005, spring 2005 timeframe. And that was the end of the div cab as we all knew it from a long time ago, where you had the combined arms, uh, armor and air in the divisional cavalry. So Colonel Mills uh, met you then. And we had a few, I think we shared a few drinks at a big party in downtown Schweinfurt at the Bra House. And we, we uh, did, we did. some uh, of the stories of the old days. That's my old stomping grounds, you know. Yeah. I was I was stationed at Schweinfurt at Con Barracks commanding a tank company. Uh, first first ground assignment out of Vietnam as a as a brand new captain. And loved Schweinfurt. Uh, uh, flew OH 13S models there as a as a, a category B aviator. Um, had a great time. Loved loved going back. Uh, Everything was uh, was just as I remembered it. Even even the bartender was the same guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so yeah, what's, it's what's uh, interesting, no, and that ahead. was already twenty almost twenty years ago now. Gosh, yeah, it's I guess I guess, fast the time I guess it would be. That's uh, yeah, I I I came in and uh, and the, uh, whatever the airline was lost my baggage, and when I came down to to meet you guys at the at the uh, uh, brew house uh they still hadn't found my luggage but they did for the event so i was i was in good shape <laughs> right um you you mentioned uh commanding a tank company and i don't think a lot of people maybe understand that so aviation these days of course in the army is its own branch everyone branches into aviation but in your day it was sort of like an ad almost like an additional duty or a, a specialty or something, right? So you it, were an it armor was in, It was, in fact, an additional specialty. All all Army aviators, uh, RLOs, the, the commission guys, uh, the better looking of the two opportunities, um, Correct. Had, to, uh, had to remain proficient in our ground branch. I was an armor officer, cavalry officer. Uh, and so in my career, I commanded a tank company. I commanded an armored cavalry troop at Fort Hood, um, uh, an attack company, a, a, a air cav troop, uh, scout platoons, uh, gun platoons, and all that. But I, I truly enjoyed the ground. Um, we were able, we had to fly 80 hours a year, as I recall. And, uh, and we did that evenings and weekends. We had, uh, I think, five or six uh, S model uh, H-13s until about October of 70. And then we got A model 58s. First time I ever flew a 58 was in Schweinfurt. Uh, and we just went down and flew around looking for guest houses. And then we went back on the <laughs> ground and, yeah. and, uh, and ate there. I mean, that's essentially what we did. Stayed the heck away from the interzonal border. Uh, so we wouldn't get a, a brass monkey called on us, although that happened a time or two when I was there. Um, yeah. But truly, uh, truly a great experience. I, I loved Schweinfurt. I loved uh, I lived off off in the uh, in the ville in uh, Brebersdorf, which was out to the west a little bit. Yeah, I, I, if I recall, I had a, a couple of my warrant officer buddies lived out that direction as well. Yeah, it was a great it was a great place. I love Germany. Uh, we, we went back to uh, Mainz in 78. I commanded a Charlie attack out of 8th Aviation Battalion and we were at Mainz Fenton. 
and uh, lived on on base so on that particular tour lived in the stairwells and uh, enjoyed that equally well yeah good place I, I want to go back oh me too um, there's not a whole lot of opportunities anymore well now that I'm a civilian I guess I could go whenever I want <laughs> but there's not not a whole lot of uh, opportunities to be stationed over there as an aviator anymore just uh, just one cab now but yeah, I, I spent part of my youth growing up in stairwell living as well. I, I was an army brat growing up a, a couple tours in the 70s and 80s in Germany. Yeah, we, we enjoyed it. Um, uh, you know, being a, being a ground-based aviator, uh, <clears throat> it, in my opinion, it brought to the cockpit the ability to understand, to empathize, if you will, for the guy on the ground that you're supporting. If I supported yeah. a, a tank unit, um, as, as we did when I had an attack company, I knew exactly uh, how that guy maneuvered on the ground and, and the difficulties they would face. And uh, I, I remember aviators who were who were not branch qualified or ground qualified, uh, thinking you could perhaps move a lot faster on the ground than you really could. Uh, easy in a helicopter, not quite so easy in an M60 or, or a Sheridan or, or something like that. But uh, yeah. I thought it was a great help. Uh, I think we lost something in that regard, but that's just a personal opinion. Yeah, there's certainly something no, to be said but, for you that. Know, it's coming um, back and you have a lot of warrants that, that come from the ground branches, and so they kind of bring that. But yeah, <coughs> from the RLO side, it's certainly something that's missing. Yes, sir. Yeah, Casmo, well, I got my first ride in an M1 at Grafenbeer with one of our uh, uh, ground cav troop guys. We <laughs> wandered over yeah. there, and uh, instead of flying a helicopter back, I got a ride in a in an M1 back from Graf back to the uh, main cantonment area, which was it's pretty noisy. Cool. In this, it's all whiny sounding. That turbine just <laughs> yep. yeah, J yeah. JP4. Yeah. Um, well, you, yeah. you know, the, the, it, it's a great field to go tooling down the road in a Cobra or an Apache, I suspect, but there is no greater feeling of raw power than to go down the road in a, in a 52 to 70 ton main battle tank. Yeah. I, I remember uh, the, the one story I'll share with you. We were, we were called out. Uh, some guys that are listening may remember the great call out of, of 1970 when on new year's Eve, uh, they called a general defense plan rollout. Uh, I rolled out the gate of con barracks uh, from the waist up. I had a tanker jacket, a 45 and a shoulder holster in my helmet. From the waist down, I was in dress blues. I came directly from the club, directly across the, the, the uh, parking lot into my, uh, my tank parking area. But going down the hill in Niedersheim, um, my lead tank broke traction on the frozen ground and started to slide. And I looked, Ooh. I was, I was the number two tank and I looked up and I saw the tank commander drop down in the hatch and he went straight into a house at the bottom of the hill, <laughs> penetrated the first floor. And uh, it just happened to be the mayor's home right at the intersection in downtown uh, Niederworm. And, uh, we paid a lot of money that's, for that, guys. That guys. Yeah, house, that that's when the EXO breaks out the checkbook and starts. You just you <laughs> just say how many how many zeros, sir? You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a great experience. I I, I loved you know I, I I was an exchange officer in Canada, for 
for a time, I commanded a, a, a cavalry troop with the Lord Strathcona's in Calgary. Loved that. Um, liked tanks, liked armored cav. Uh, didn't much care for staff work, but uh, I, I just think it, it makes a well-rounded attack cavalry officer if you understand how the guys on the ground, the guys who we, we exist to support are, yeah. uh, are doing their thing. So yeah, for, for people watching or listening later, um, and I'm sure we covered it on the last episode, but, but we'll do it again. When you joined the army, you were an armor officer. How did you get into aviation? Was that something that was hard for you to get into or at the time, was it pretty easy to, to get on that track? It was, it was easy as I view it today. Um, I enlisted in the army February, 1967 as a paratrooper. Um, I had no conscious thought that if you did that, you would wind up in Vietnam on the ground. It, that never occurred <laughs> to me. <clears throat> I was a sport parachute guy in college. Uh, I did real well at that. I did poorly in college. And so I enlisted in the Airborne Infantry Option uh, in February of 67 after one semester at Arkansas Tech. I passed ROTC and Sport Parachute Club. Everything else was a dismal failure. So that was kind of an indicator to me that I ought to do something else. <laughs> so while I was in, in, in basic training, I took all that battery of tests. I did well on the uh, OC battery. They called me in. They said, we're going we're gonna to send you to officer candidate school. Uh, I didn't know what that was, but I said, okay. And uh, went to Fort Knox uh, in uh, July of 60. Seven graduated in in uh, uh, December December fifteenth of, uh, of of sixty seven, and while I was there, uh, a bunch of us were told that hey, you know, the army's looking for helicopter pilots if you're interested. And I thought yeah, that's cool. So the requirement was you had to go take a ride in an army aircraft, and I went down to the airfield there at uh, at Fort Knox and and got a ride along with another candidate. Um, and it was in an OH-6. It was a brand new uh, OH-6 in stateside marking, beautiful little bird. I'd never seen one. And on the first leg, we flew to Lexington Bluegrass Depot from, from uh, Knox, and I rode in the back. It was awful. Anybody who's ever ridden in the back of an OH-6 knows they're awful. Um, if you're a crew chief in an OH-6 and you're taller than five foot six, you, you know it's awful. Um, <laughs> But I rode, I rode back in the front seat, in the, in the left seat, uh, on the second leg, and I got to fly it a little bit, play with the controls. And I think the requirement was if, if you weren't scared to death and if you didn't throw up, you passed the orientation. And, and apparently that's what worked for me. And I got a set of orders to flight school. Um, I stayed at Knox for about three months as a training officer on the M114 platform. Uh, training crew members for the scout reconnaissance vehicles. Uh, and then I went off uh, April uh, of, uh, of 68, went to flight school, Walters, then Rucker. Um, took the B model gunship track at Rucker. They, they were, with our class, uh, some of the guys flew D model Hueys. Uh, we didn't have H models at that time. And some of us were, were kind of geared toward B model, C model. Uh, orientation and I flew B model gunships primarily 
and then off to Vietnam in a unit that had no B model gunships. Uh, so I wound up flying the H models for about a month. And then uh, when the scout platoon leader uh, uh, requested relief, uh, I, I had volunteered to take that platoon when it was available. And that's, that's how I got into scouts. How, how different was the H model and the B model? Like what were sort of fundamental differences there? It had some semblance of power. <laughs> the, the, B, the B model up. And now this is my opinion as a, as a low time B model, uh, uh, pilot, uh, it operated uh, best with, with momentum. If you were going downhill, you were in good shape. If you were trying to go uphill, it kind of struggled. Um, I've heard the stories of B model crew chiefs running alongside and jumping in as it bounced down the runway. I never have believed any of that nonsense, but, but it was close. The, uh, the B models had, uh, what the L 11 and the H model had the L 13, I believe, uh, engine, um, H model had a lot of power. Uh, you, you could, you could haul six or eight, uh, uh in our case, aero rifle guys with no problem. And I, I flew insertions, uh, with dark horse for the first month or two. And, and, uh, on, uh, I think I'd been there 30 days when the, the uh, lift platoon leader was, was a young fellow named Wayne McAdoo and Wayne went on R and R to Hawaii. And, and he said, you're the platoon leader for the next week or 10 days. Uh, I'd, I'd never let a flight much less let a, a platoon. Um, so that was kind of interesting. We, I picked the best warrant officer I had, uh, a guy named Bob Hart or, uh, uh, Bob Holmes. And, uh, he flew it and I talked on the radio and that's how we survived for, for about, uh, about a week or 10 days. Um, I was, uh, we had a mission, we had a mission to, to go, uh, drop the ARPs on some LERPs that were in big trouble, five or six LERPs were surrounded, uh, uh, took casualties. They needed, uh, relief. We dropped the, uh, the ARPs about, uh, half a click off of them so they could get into them on the ground. And as we, as we went out, I had prepared uh, a, a fire mission for the LZ. Um, and I was talking to division artillery and I'm shooting artillery into the, into the uh, landing zone. And the last round was, uh, was to be a white phosphorus. And as I'm talking and shooting, uh, we hit the initial point and turned inbound and, and you could see the LZ off in the, in the distance and the rounds, you know, one, five, five and eight inch going off in the, in the LZ. And as we get closer, Bob kind of looks at me and I'm talking on the radio and we continue on and we're about 300 yards out. And he looks at me uh, again with, you know, are you sure you know what you're doing? <laughs> and we saw this beautiful white phosphorus go off in the landing zone and put the ARPs in, took off to, uh, to go uh, loiter and, and wait for them. And he asked me on the radio, he said, that was cool. How many times have you done that? And I, I said, once. <laughs> and that was the only time I ever adjusted artillery in Vietnam. The only time. Well, it's better to be lucky than good, I guess. That's that's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to go back to the Huey gunship, talking about the B model, what what constituted a B model gunship? Because I know later on they had Hueys with the rocket pods and stuff. Is that what 
was on the B model as well, or was it just yeah. sort of like door gunners and dedicated? Yeah, the uh, the B model in flight school, of course, had no we had no door gunners in, in flight school. We just had the sure. aircraft. And the aircraft in flight school in, in 68 was a B model L11, I believe, um, M16 flex uh, gun system. Uh, we didn't have the mini guns. We had the four M60, I believe it's called an M16 system. In Vietnam, they had the M21 system, which was dual mini guns and the seven shot pods. Okay. Uh, I did not fly the 19 shot with the uh, with the thumper in the nose, the frog uh, version. Right. But essentially, we just we we flew the aircraft like it was flown in Vietnam. The instructors taught us to protect the flight inbound, prep the LZ, uh, daisy chains around the sides, and and I thought that was you know really really cool. My uh, one of my roommates at Savannah. Uh, when I went through the Cobra course uh, a couple of years later, uh, had been a B model you know, gunship pilot, and and uh, he just he just loved them. They were they were great aircraft. They were not as gutsy as the Charlie model, and then later the Mike model. Um, but Dark Horse had had when Dark Horse deployed in '65 with the first division. Um, all they had was B models. They had uh, a platoon of, of B model slicks and a platoon of B model guns, and they had no scouts. And during during that first year, they developed the need for scouts. And so the, the order went out to pull H-13s from various units, artillery adjustment and liaison and places like that. And that's where the scouts came from for the for the air cav troops initially and dark horse specifically. And those guys all were drawn from in country, where the guys flying the B models uh, who had just just gotten there were were all deployed from Riley. So the scout guys were totally unknown to all the other guys, and they were sitting sitting down one day and and one of them said uh, the platoon leader said we're nothing but a bunch of Flipping, that was not the word he used, but we're, we're a bunch of flipping outcasts. That's where the name came from. Uh, and, it, and it stuck. And the initial patch that they wore, uh, the, the very first one had an Indian head on it, kind of looking down. Um, the, I've only seen reproductions. I've never seen an original of that particular patch. And then a, a year or so later, they changed it to a blue rectangle with a white skull with some bullet holes in it and, and the, uh, the name outcasts. And then underneath it said arrow scouts. Um, and that's the patch I wore when I first got there. And then of course it was, it was Joe Vad that, that, uh, designed the low level hell patch that is synonymous with the outcast of today. And, uh, and, and got approval uh, first from me and then the troop commander. And then we changed that patch and that's where the, that's where the logo came from. And there you go. That's Joe Vad right there. Uh, yeah. Joe was a former yeah. Marine. If you look at that left arm, that's his Marine Corps tattoo, big old bulldog <laughs> on it. <clears throat> but uh, he was one of my scouts from, from New York and, uh, and uh, didn't like our patch. And so he just designed that one. <laughs> <clears throat> and, uh, 
I will tell you that's the most uh, widely reproduced Vietnam patch out there. The the originals, and there are very few that exist that are real, uh, will will bring a lot of money. Yeah, Colonel Mills, <laughs> did you know that that name lived on uh, at the at Charlie One Fourteen, which was the um, the training company at Fort Rucker that uh, was Cobras and then transitioned to the 58Ds, but um, they they took up the the call sign outcast in honor of, of that legacy. Um, I, I, you know, you I, didn't, that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. I know that low level yeah. hell, um, uh, resided on a number of patches and a number of organizations. And the guys that did that were kind enough uh, in, in some cases to send me patches. Um, but yeah. the, the outcast was the original name of the platoon from the day it was formed. Um, and then low level hell was the motto that actually, uh, that, that patch was approved in, uh, in, uh, late June, early July, 1969 and, uh, stayed that way until, uh, dark horse departed country in 19, uh, uh, 73, January 73. Okay. Uh, Jake, I had Jake look up, see if we can find a picture of a Huey like you were talking about. Uh, so we kind of got one here. It's kind of hard to see, but there's uh looks like a seven shot rocket pod. And I guess that's, yeah, that's the, that's the M21 system. Um, okay. That's the mini gun. Okay. Uh, many of the, uh, uh, most, I would think of the, of the, uh, aviation assault companies, um, their gun platoons, uh, and and they, we had them right across the, the runway. The uh, the first aviation battalion B company, uh, when I was there, had one platoon of Cobras, one platoon of uh, Charlie models, uh, which was that that aircraft right there, and then one platoon of OH six uh, liaison command and control aircraft, and that company was called the Rebels. Great gun pilots. Um, and I, I will tell you that the Army, sadly, has uh, has moved away from even recognizing that the rebels exist. There's a rebel Charlie model at the uh, 1st Infantry Division Museum in Wheaton, Illinois. And they're repainting that thing as a, I believe, as a tomahawk um, hmm. uh, because of the deglamorization of the name rebels. But the rebels were a great... Hmm. A, a great gun platoon, a great Cobra pilots, great Charlie model guys. And the Charlie models would get down there on the treetops with you, with scouts. You had to watch for Charlie models. Uh, Cobras <laughs> were up there about 1,500 feet, you know, on oxygen, uh, worried about <laughs> hypoxia and all that sort of thing. We didn't worry about those guys, but the Charlie models would get right down there with you. And the beauty of a Charlie model or a B model were those extra four eyeballs in the back. The gunner and the crew chief working just like a gunner on an OH-6, and those guys were terrific. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, like, you talked about the scout platoon kind of being left alone and not really utilized there at the beginning. Um, how important did it turn out to have scouts, uh, particularly aero scouts, in that environment? You know, it's the jungle and, and the hills and the mountains and everything. 
you know, what was, was there like an immediate impact when that stuff started, started using uh, scouts more prolifically? Like just why was it important? Well, the, the air cavalry troop actually evolved further than just scouts. When, when they first got there, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have blues, uh, ARPs. Um, the division long range reconnaissance company, uh, 52nd infantry, if I recall correctly, I believe it was F company 52nd had, uh, had long range patrols and they were parceled out to D troop. Uh, and their call sign was wildcat. Um, and they were the initial, uh, ARPs, if you will, the, the, the troop existed uh, largely to move those guys around. And then when they decided to to add a ground dimension uh, with a little more firepower, uh, they pulled in infantrymen from the field, uh, and their call sign initially was Doughboy. Um, and then when the long range reconnaissance companies all merged into the 75th Ranger Regiment in Vietnam, I think India. Uh, India 75th was the first division, but don't, don't quote me on that. Um, then the ARPs became a standalone unit, the fourth platoon, if you will. And, and the, the ability for the scouts to find the target for the guns to address the target, uh, and protect the Hueys and the Hueys to bring in the infantry and put them on the ground to physically dominate the target is what air cavalry was all about. It was very fast. It was very flexible. Um, our primary missions uh, were reconnaissance and security. We put up visual recon teams, uh, at least three every day. Uh, we flew pink teams in 69, one gun and one scout. Um, and then we had, uh, two scramble teams on strip alert. Uh, ready to respond whenever those VR elements made contact with the enemy. Um, generally, we would put the ARPs on the ground to develop the situation, and then uh, as, as needed, the scramble teams would respond to other units within the division uh, or to the ARPs in contact or to downed aviators. Uh, we did a ripping business on recovering downed aviators. Um, when I was there, we, we got everybody from Air Force, Navy, VNAF. Uh, we picked up a VNAF Sky Raider pilot that crashed out northwest of Saigon, and his airplane was barely visible in the muck when we got there. To, he was standing on the uh, in the cockpit, and that's about all you could see was this little bitty VNAF pilot standing up in a sunken Sky Raider. But the ability to grab a crew that's just gone down uh, before the bad guys can grab them was was tremendous asset that uh, I, I worry today I, i've i've talked to everybody that would listen to me at uh, at branch and and at, at uh, nova cell uh, we we need to do better with combat search and rescue we need to be ready to snatch them when they go down we don't need any more basher five two uh, issues with losing a guy in bosnia and then not knowing where the heck he is uh combat search and rescue is is a is an art that needs to be relearned the air force was terrific at it i'm a direct result of of uh of a rescue on 30 january of uh of uh 72 
I went I went down on the Laotian border uh, along with my co-pilot and a Cobra, and we were snatched by the Jolly Greens. Uh, we we had one Jolly Green snatch another guy a month earlier, and uh, and then one uh, ten days before me. So we need to do better as an army in combat search and rescue. The ability to grab your wingman is something we need to do better at. We've yeah, that's something. We've done That's all the stuff about the, you know, hanging the straps on Apaches and, and of course, 50H could do that. Um, Blackhawks can do that, but it's, uh, it just seems to me that with the, with the single aircraft units, it's kind of hard to officially and doctrinally uh, come up with combat search and rescue that I, I think is missing. Yeah, that, that's something, and Kazim, I'm sure you'll agree with me, that's something that we thought a lot about. And, you know, the, the first option was always have your wingman pick you up because that's immediate. So if that, and, you know, in 58s or in 64s, there's no extra seats. So you got to figure out how to hook yourself onto that thing, whether you're standing on the skids or sitting on the EFABs or whatever. But that was always part of our pre-mission uh team brief uh what what the actions would be if one of our one of our team went down and you know it was always first consideration to do an immediate extraction with our own assets and and then call in the the air force or external assets because army doesn't have their own csar um they, they don't have anything organic so we and relying on on the air force to show up you know anywhere it's probably at a minimum minutes or dozens of minutes to however far away they are before they can get spun up could be an hour. Well, or more, well, yeah. So. Yeah. The, 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 with the air force, you got to wait or you got to wait till the club closes and, and maybe the HBO <laughs> series has yeah. stopped, but I, I will tell you, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this uh, recently, uh, captain Larry Taylor, Cobra pilot uh, received the medal of honor from the president. You guys probably saw that Larry was a dark horse gun pilot. Um, hmm. That was 1968, and the guys he rescued were one of those Wildcat teams, and he did it with a brand-new Cobra. Mm. Um, he was told to break station and return to base. He said, I'm not doing it. I'm going in to get them. He did it in the dark. Uh, he had uh, lerps on top of rocket pods and skids, and we hadn't even talked about uh, gun bay straps and all that stuff. But uh, Larry Taylor was a dark horse uh, Cobra pilot, and he did that in in '68, and that's uh, I, I know rescues yeah. go further than that, and, but that was a terrific a terrific move on his part. And and you can say in '68 he had a brand new aircraft, and I think that's the last time any any of us have ever seen a brand new aircraft. <laughs> you know, uh, well, I can I can tell you in in Vietnam. I've been asked many times, you know, how the aircraft held up and, and how they matured over time. I don't have any idea. I never had an aircraft in 69 make 300 hour uh, phase inspection. Not one ever. That's crazy. Um, yeah. They were all shot up so fast. And, and we simply uh, uh, would fly down to Hotel Alpha, a big field down there with, with Chinooks, Cobras, Hueys, OH6s lined up, uh, just stacked you know, two or three deep. And they'd say sixth OH6 on your right. That's yours. Go get it. And it was brand new zero time aircraft. Um, the, uh, all of 1969, not one of my aircraft made 300 hours. 
they were all wow. replaced before that. We we got to the point where we stopped painting stuff on the airplanes. We started with cav sabers and all that yeah. uh, stuff on the you know on the canopy, and and uh, we finally just stopped because uh, we we were constantly painting airplanes. But um, yeah, and and you know, Casma and Casma, I'm sure you can relate. But in in our day if you lost one, you're not getting a replacement. You're, you're doing without for the rest of that deployment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say the one that I got shot up in, uh, it was a, you know, total loss. And, uh, yeah, I don't think they ever replaced it for that, that deployment. That was just, you're just out. And which is interesting. Cause yeah, when you, when you, my understanding of it is they were just churning out helicopters back then. And you were just the ones you're talking about. They were just constant stream of aircraft. And it's because they were cheaper to manufacture. They weren't as jazzed up as the ones that we have nowadays, but they're just so technologically advanced that it's, it's an effort and you've only got a finite supply. Um, Cause it's fascinating. I mean, hell sir, you, you correct me if I'm wrong. You were shot down 16 times. Is that correct? Well, not all at once. Um, <laughs> not on the same day. <laughs> it was, it was, I have gone down more than once in the same day. Um, twice. I'm going to the club after the first one, man. <laughs> my, my, uh, my roommate, Rod, Rod Willis, who's featured heavily in low level hell went down three times in one day in, yeah, the, same, in the same place. Right. Um, that's an interesting photo you, you threw up there. I, the, the markings confused me a little bit. That's kind of how we flew. It says fourth cav, but that's a series three loach. That's a sleigh radio system loach. That FM antenna uh, coming out of the bottom indicates that. Mm. Th that's not a dark horse loach, and it wasn't a fourth cav that I've ever seen. And you look at the aircraft, uh, yeah, that's, that's clearly Vietnam. But uh, goodness, I don't know who that is. Those markings elude me. Yeah, I don't know. Jake found this for us as we were talking about it, so I'm not sure. Jake, if did, did it say anything about uh, that picture? Uh, no, nothing specific. Just grab it up quick because it had the fourth cab. You know what it, what it could be, what it very well could be, that could be a three-quarter cav aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our sister squadron three-quarter was across the delta of the, the, uh, the uh, Iron Triangle from us. They were over at Coochie, and I'll bet you that was a three-quarter cav uh centaurs uh, uh and and they were the other the other uh regimental squadron that was that was in vietnam they were chopped to the uh, 25th division actually sir that's a, yep that's exactly you said centaurs it's uh it's right down there on it so that's exactly what it was not as I not as that. pretty as not as pretty as dark horse loaches but uh uh that is exactly as we flew them some of the gunners rode in the seat uh, and others uh, preferred to sit on the floor. Hmm. So hey, speak, uh, going back to the combat I'm search and I'm rescue curious. stuff, hold on. Uh, so for the combat rescue stuff, you know, one of the things that Barrett talked about is it, it was always a plan that we were supposed to do it. I think the problem I ever had was we never got to practice the plan. Um, you know, we talked about, oh, ride on the rocket pods and cl climb up on the EFABs and all this stuff. It, but you could never get approval to practice that type of stuff. Um, for you guys in Vietnam, obviously it sounds like you got a lot of practice in the real world, but I mean, was it sort of an SOP? Like, was it just kind of spur of the moment? It's just a thing you did. What was there discussion about it? it? It actually, the first couple of times we did it, it was a spur of the moment. 
Um, I recall, I recall landing and, and I talked about it in, in low level Herald. There's a, there's a piece in there where my gunship, uh, Dean Shiner and Larry Kaufman, uh, we, we were trying to get back to Fuloy and we were flying underneath outgoing artillery. Um, it was coming out of, out of, uh, Lycay and going over into the Iron Triangle and we couldn't get around it, uh, but we could get under it. And so we jumped over on the 25th division side of the river and we're tooling down the river and, and uh, passed over about a platoon of North Vietnamese who all looked up in surprise as I went over the top of them. And I, I keyed the mic and I said, uh, break right, break right. And just as Dean flew over the top of them, they lit him up. And his Cobra went about 300 yards and, uh, and he had to put it on the ground. It was, it was done for. Um, I, I, the first thing I did was call for another aircraft. Uh, they had about 300 yards to go and I, I knew that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fast. But Paul Fishman, one of our dark horse guns was, was several miles away and he left his loach and came, came at us full bore. Uh, but he wasn't there yet and the enemy was getting closer and closer. And, and I finally said, I'm going in to get them. And, uh, I told Paul, I said, when you get here, hit the, uh, hit the North side of the landing zone where the Cobra is and I'm going in to get them. And we hit the ground and I told the crew chief, I said, get them aboard. Um, one jumped in the front seat with me, um, I don't remember if it was Dean or Larry, but one jumped in the back seat with Jim Parker and that aircraft sank in the muck up to the belly. Both skids went right down into the muck <laughs> and I'm yelling at, at Parker to throw stuff overboard. He's, he's kicking out his ammo. He's kicking out uh, chicken plates. Uh, I'm rocking the thing back and forth. And finally I'm looking at the, at the torque and it scared me. So I didn't look at it anymore. I just kept pulling torque and, and uh, that thing popped out of the mud and went up about a hundred feet straight up in the air. And uh, just as Paul Fishman arrived with rockets on the right side of us and we flew that thing back to Fuloy and it never, that engine never flew again. In fact, that engine never started again. Once we stopped, it just fused itself together. The huge tech rep asked me how much TOT I pulled. And I said, honestly, sir, I do not know. Uh, everything I had was pegged for way more than the, than the, than the, uh, recommended limits. Uh, but you know, another engine was, you know, two hours away. So All right. take it out, put a new one in, but that was a, that was a come as you are rescue. I, I, if I hadn't grabbed them, they'd have been caught. If Paul hadn't been there, they'd have been caught. Um, yeah. But we did we did talk about it. Loaches uh, were were the fastest uh, to grab folks, especially if your cobra went down. The loach could grab two guys pretty easy. Barrett, what, what were we gonna say? No, I was gonna ask Colonel Mills if he was around in the days. Did you ever cross paths with the light horse guys? Um, you know that was mid sixties and and three seventeen cab. I think you know they had a different approach to the stetsons, so kind of totally switching gears on on the conversation but it just yeah me yeah that's 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 kind of interesting because uh because with lamson 719 um charlie uh third of the 17th which was at zeon i was at fuloy they were at zeon 
uh, just south of us. But for Lamson 719, Charlie 317 uh, came north, as did uh, uh, D Troop 3rd of the 5th Cav, uh, War Wagon. And at the conclusion of that operation, the, the 9th Division was going home, uh, but they left the Air Cav Troop and, and everybody exchanged guidons. And so D Troop 3rd of the 5th Cav and C Troop 3rd of the 17th merged switched guidons and the unit that uh, that stayed in country was called d troop third of the fifth cav call sign charlie horse um when i got there they were wearing the the tri-border patch which was worn for lamson 719 by third of the 17th they used the call sign charlie horse but the unit designator was third of the fifth uh cav and there's two elements out there now, the guys that flew with light horse and the guys that flew with Charlie horse. And then there's the guys who were in Delta third of the fifth, but used the call sign Charlie horse. And that bunch is called the bastard Gav. Um, we, we wore a ninth division shoulder patch. We wore a one Oh first patch over our U S army name tag, uh, until December of, uh, 71 and then we became d troop 17th cavalry provisional uh but the answer is yes uh and and there's a big reunion bunch with light horse and charlie horse nice uh, okay that goes on every year yeah i served many, with 317 um, back in the late 90s when they were still at fort drum and and light horse was used but the 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 gray stetsons are extremely uncommon um I, I i don't know that i've ever even seen anybody wear one uh, you know in my time um but you it's know a the uh, tradition and a good oral history the guys that were in uh the guys that were in seventh of the first at vinlong uh, wore a, an even stranger stetson it wasn't gray it was kind of a tan um uh, and and we got an air mission commander, a wonderful guy named Ken Hibble, uh, when the seventh of the first stood down in uh, oh about June of seventy uh, two or so. Ken came down and became one of our Huey AMCs, and uh, he wore that damn silver looking uh, calf hat. All of us had black, and he he wore that silver thing. We all tried to steal it, but he was he was pretty he was pretty. Uh, uh conscious yeah, about not, le not leaving it laying out yeah we, we <laughs> tried to steal it for months but he, we never never pulled it off good for yeah, him. i think the 11th acr has brown stetsons oh yeah brown. now that you mention it I, right yeah um that's the only place i've seen it but i know some of the gray ones I've, I've never seen anyone wear that either but i have seen them like in pictures or, or whatever how yeah. many um how many tours did you do in in vietnam sir uh, three. And they were all flying, right? You didn't do any of your ground time there? No, no. I, I, some people have said I spent enough time on the ground to count that as a tour, but they, they're exaggerating. Um, <laughs> my first tour, uh, uh, scout platoon leader, uh, dark horse, uh, second platoon, our second tour was, uh, uh, Cobra, uh, platoon section leader, number two guy in a, uh, in third of the fifth. And then when third of the fifth stood down, the kind of an interesting story, the, 
the uh, the troop commander came to me in, in about February of 72, and he said, uh, the unit's standing down. You're a second tour guy. You get to go home. And I, I had I had returned to Vietnam for a specific reason, and I had lost a wife to cancer uh, right after my first tour. I, I We were married seven months, and she died of ovarian cancer, and I, I didn't want to stay in the States and, and mull over that. Yeah. And so I said, you know, boss, I'd just as soon, uh, I'd just as soon stay. And he said, well, you don't have any orders. He said, go find a job. So I picked up the phone and I called Dark Horse, which was then at Canto. And I got Rod Willis on the phone. Rod had come back right after I did. <clears throat> and I said, uh, you got any vacancies down there? And he says, well, we need a scout platoon leader. Ours got shot. And I said, uh, hold the phone. I'm coming. And, uh, and I, without orders, I packed my duffel bag, uh, said goodbye to Charlie horse, jumped on a C-130, made my way to Saigon, was hanging around hotel three and in comes a dark horse loach. And, uh, and it landed out about where I was. And I walked over and asked the pilot if he was going to Canto. He said, yeah, we're doing a PX run, but I'm going back to Canto. I waited for him, jumped aboard. We went to Canto and, on the way down there, he's letting me fly in the front seat. I had a flight suit with Cobra patches on, so he thought I was a Cobra pilot. And uh, he said, what are you going to do at, at Canto? I said, I'm going to Dark Horse. He said, oh, you're going to fly Cobras. I said, no, I'm going to be your new platoon leader. And that was Rusty Rice, who was my maintenance officer. And uh, when I told him that, he said, oh, would you like to fly? And I thought that was very nice of him. Uh, he was sucking up at an early opportunity, <laughs> but, uh, that's the first time I'd flown an OH-6. Uh, that was, uh, February of 72. I had not flown one since 69, but that was my third tour. Went home, uh, in uh, September of, uh, 72 to go to the armor advanced course. Okay. Now you, you did fly Cobras too, right? Did I miss that? I did. Or? Second, okay. second tour, second tour, second I flew tour. Cobras. Um, okay. I had the, I had the strangest, I don't know if I, did I tell you the story of how I became a Cobra pilot the last time? No, I don't think so. I, I, I was, I was, my wife had passed away. I got a hold of Branch. I said, I would like to return to Vietnam. They were a little surprised by that, but Branch knew exactly what had happened. And, and they said, would you like a school en route? I said, how about Cobra school? So I got a set of orders that sent me to Savannah, Georgia, Hunter Army Airfield, Cobra class one, two, three, four. Um, and I got there and I walked into the Cobra Hall, uh, just got back from the Cobra Hall reunion a month ago. But uh, I walked into Cobra Hall and I sat down and, and there's three other guys in the room. Uh, Chief Warrant Officer Bob Hartley, Chief Warrant Officer Ken Shriver, Captain Larry Massman and me. And I thought, wow, not many guys are going back to Vietnam as Cobra pilots. But the instructor came in, one of the W-2s. We walked out on the ramp. We're playing with a Cobra that's been uh, depaneled. And he's asking questions of these guys. What's this, uh, Captain Massman? That's the intervalometers. Uh, what's this, uh, uh, Mr. Hartley? That's the control motion transducers. Captain Mills, what's this? I have no earthly idea what that is. <laughs> and after about three of, I have no ideas, he said, how many hours you got in the Cobra? 
I said, I don't have any hours in a Cobra. And he says, well, this is the Cobra instructor pilot's course. Oh, so I had been sent by the army to the Cobra IP course and I was not qualified in the aircraft. So they worried and worried and worried for a day or so. And they, and finally they looked at my flight records and they said, you're an SIP in the OH six. I said, yes, I am. They said, you're an SIP in a Huey. I said, yes, I am. They said, MOI ought not to be a problem. I said, I don't think so. And they said, well, you just can't fly the airplane. I said, well, I, I'll try very hard. And what they decided <laughs> to do was I would learn the maneuvers in the morning and then I would switch seats and teach the maneuver back uh, after that. And while the other guys were doing MOI and then gunnery, uh, uh, they actually graduated a full week before I did, because by the time I got to gunnery, they were gone. And so I went to the gunnery range, me and a Cobra and an IP and all the ammo we could shoot for a week or just me as fast as we could turn the airplane. They'd, they'd throw rockets. And, and that's the first time I got to shoot the M35 system. And I really liked it. The Gatling gun on the uh, 20 millimeter on the left wing really, really liked that. That was a, that was an OH6 minigun on steroids. And uh, yeah. and so when I graduated, I, I, I headed to Vietnam, and the unit IP was a crusty guy named Mac Cockrell. We lost him last year. Um, he's looking at my flight records. He says, you have 42 hours in a Cobra. I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, you're an IP in the Cobra. I said, yes, uh, chief, I am. And he says, that's not possible. And of course, I had to tell him the story. When Steve Wing, one of our wonderful uh, Cobra IPs, left country, I, I was designated to become an SIP. And so I, I went down to division and took an SIP check ride with Bob Hartley, who was one of my classmates in the, uh, in the Cobra IP course. I later found out that Hartley, Schreiber, and Massman were all Cobra IPs who had had a break in service. And that's mm. the class they stuck me in with. Three Cobra IPs. All of them had 1,500 plus hours combat time. And me. Uh, so I took an SIP check ride with the 101st uh, DES with 123 hours in the aircraft. And I'll bet you that nobody's done that since. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I enjoyed yeah. uh, I enjoyed Cobras. Uh, I, I flew Cobras the same way that that Cobras had covered me when I was a scout. And I elected with the gun. I flew with a 20 ship and I elected to fly that thing at, uh, at what I call the low gun position at 600, 650 feet directly on the tail of my scout. And as a former scout, I could tell when his tail boom went up in the air. I rolled right then before he even said taking fire. I knew what was happening. I put my pipper on where he was. And as he broke, um, I, I'd start uh, zipping in there with either 20 or flechettes, um, usually not HE. <clears throat> but I, I enjoyed flying guns. Uh, um, I went down in a gun on the 30th of January. I lost, uh, I lost my tail boom. Uh, to a uh, hang fire. So I know what it's like to crash. Uh, only one of my crashes was a Cobra. 15 of them were an OH-6 and, and, and they weren't really crashes. They were, uh, the one in the Cobra was a bona fide crash. It was, it was awful. Uh, but most of the, the, the OH-6s were inability to maintain 
flight, either engine shot out or uh, uh, one of the ones I remember very specifically, I took a 50 round through the leading edge of a blade and the, the vibration is the worst thing I ever experienced in an aircraft. And thankfully I was only off the ground when that happened and I went directly ahead of me into a rice paddy and, and uh, I couldn't even see the ground that was vibrating that bad. The fact that that blade did not separate is is a pure indication that I have an outstanding relationship with the Almighty. Either <laughs> that or he has a terrific sense of humor, one or the other. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, Lord. Well, I wanted to ask, I, I have some questions that uh, supporters of the show have sent in, and I didn't want to lose track of time and miss these. Sure. And we're sort of talking about some of them right now. Uh, first question I've got here from Morgan Owens. Uh, you sort of touched on it, I think, is what was it like transitioning from the UH-1 to the OH-6? Any notable incidents from the training? So I think we could probably ask the broader question. Uh the difficulties or was it seamless going from these airframes? Cause I think for, for Barrett and I, it's, it's an emotional uh, moment to go from one airframe to another. You know, when we left the flying uh, OH 58s to go into Apaches, you know, it was this five month course and then you're almost kind of starting from scratch. But for you guys, it seemed like it was, it was very fluid. Yeah. We, we, uh, when I, when I was picked to uh, transition to the scout platoon, um, our unit IP was a guy named Bill Hayes, um, referred to in low-level hell as Buff. You guys know what that means. He was a he was a large African American warrant officer. Did not look at all like a scout pilot, uh, but uh, Bill was a great pilot. Had tremendous uh, pilot technique. I think he flew with me for about five hours in the pattern at Fuloy mainly auto rotations you know the oh six if you don't know how to auto rotate it you're going to cut your tail boom off you've got to level the skids huey you come down on the heels and and you cushion it on with an oh six uh when you pull that final pitch you've got to level your skids and go on level or are the blades will flex down chop the boom off um i did that for five or six hours and then he then he said i think for the final four he said go fly around and that was my training period. Go fly around. I didn't fly far away from base. That wasn't a smart thing to do. But I was solo for four or five hours in the pattern, and I'd fly up to Lyke and turn around and fly back. And um, of course, the manual then uh, the dash ten was what we focused on. We didn't have any of the the uh, uh, crew documented requirements that came later in the army. It was it was learn your manual, learn your aircraft, and go fly it. A uh, little different in Cobra School, of course. That was a that was an Army school, but uh, the difference between the two, the Huey. No offense to Huey pilots, because I was one. The Huey was sloppy, and and uh, and 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 kind of went over which direction, and the controls weren't tight. The Loach was a fifty nine MGA, and it was tight, and it was fast, and it was maneuverable. We thought all the power in the world. I can't believe these uh, 160th guys now with 650 horsepower. I had, I had uh, uh, about 272, uh, 317 shaft downrated to 272 on the transmission, and uh, 
we went out max gross every day. And by the time we got to where we were going, we were at, at, uh, at fighting weight. Uh, but it was, it was far more fluid in, in those days. Uh, uh, essentially learned to fly the airplane from someone who, who knows it well. And then, uh, it was OJT. I learned to scout on my own a uh, little bit with a training officer, but the rest of it, uh, go figure it out. Yeah. I think you need to qualify your example there, sir. And for, for those of you, uh, internet folks out there, an MGA is a car. It's an MG model <laughs> a, and it's a cool little British sports car. Yeah, I had one of those in college. That's I've got an MGB now only because I couldn't find an MGA. Yeah. It's remarkable that they have shrunk over the years. It's it's hard to get into them now. It was pretty easy when I was when I was eighteen. Um, That's right. But the MGA is the worst part of an MGA. It had a non-synchro first first gear. Hard to, you had to come to a complete stop to put it in first. But well, that now, was the way you have to qualify your your example. You're going to have to explain what gears and clutches and same. Oh, yeah. Is. Well, that's that's <laughs> the best. Uh, that is the best uh, anti theft device you can get. It's a manual transmission. Yeah, that's right. Nowadays, <laughs> um, yeah. I was just telling my wife the other day, I want a manual transmission car. Like I miss that control. You know, you, you know, I spent many years in law enforcement after after my military service. Uh, in fact, I just retired in August. Uh, finally. Um, the, the cars that could not be stolen by the guys that seek to steal your car were the cars that had manual transmissions. They couldn't drive them. So if you don't want to lose your car, go get a four or five or even a six speed manual. They can't drive them. Yeah. I'm thinking of picking up the last of the BMW manuals just because, uh, they're done. They're not going to make any more. And, you know, 20, 30 years from now, they're, <laughs> I figure they're going to be collector's items. But that's that's the difference. Uh, the OH six was extremely agile, extremely fast, uh, very tight. Not not a comfortable airplane. Uh, uh, the armor plate was our uh, was uh, was was what we sat in, and uh, the only padding on that thing was uh, was about a six by eight uh, neoprene pad that fit on a set of Velcro behind you and you could move it about to the small of your back. And then you sat on the bottom of a, of a nylon seat. Uh, very uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable over long periods. And I've logged as, uh, as many as 15 hours. That's the longest I ever flew without uh, in a day. And, uh, and 8.1 is the longest I ever flew without getting out of it. Um, yeah. And it's not not was not a comfortable airplane, but it was if you you know for a couple of three hours it was great, but then it was a bit uh, bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I think I think the most I did was without getting out was about eight hours. I just I couldn't be bothered to just climb out. It was just too much trouble. But yeah, that is a long long day on your butt. Um, another question he had is any TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures from your time that were developed for the OH6 still in use by police and special operations forces today. I mean, I guess arguably almost everything you guys did was creating TTP because there really wasn't anything before what you guys were doing in Vietnam. There wasn't anything to kind of lean from, from, from anything prior. Was there? Uh, 
there was no there was no manual if you will if you will seek out the aero scout manual that was produced at fort knox i, I was uh, fortunate enough to be a part of that when i was in the advanced course um but we we wrote that manual uh, after the fact there there were no uh, techniques and tactics uh, different units flew scouts different ways some flew with an observer in the front seat i we did uh, in dark horse when i first got there but we're making concentric right hand turns constantly which lets the door gunner come to bear and the pilot is is actually looking out the right door it made no sense to me to have a guy in the left seat who was throwing up all the time because that's a terrible place to be. You couldn't see where you were going. And so I got rid of the observers and went to uh, the minigun, which annoyed all the Cobra pilots. They thought I was going to be a gunship and take over their job and all that, which was not the case. Um, but I did believe that the OH-6 should stay in the fight until they lost fire superiority. At that point in time, pull out, let the guns have it or if the target uh, would benefit from a cobra rocket run do it immediately what whatever you needed to do um but in terms of of manuals there were none in in those days everything that was done was done in different units some flew with a minigun and two guys up front some flew with uh, uh three and no minigun we flew with uh, a pilot and a gunner in the back and a minigun. It just depends on uh, on each unit and how they they saw their mission. We flew pink teams in three core. When I got down to four core, we were flying uh, what were called cav packs: two cobras, two loaches, and a Huey with a uh, air mission commander on it. And usually, in the Delta, a, a Vietnamese liaison officer. Uh, because when I was in the Delta, there were no American troops on the ground. It was all Vietnamese. Um, but in the Delta, you really needed a, a wingman to cover your brakes. It was like flying over a golf course. Um, mm. I mean, the enemy could take you under fire hundreds and hundreds of meters away, as opposed to three corps where usually you were on top of them before they saw you or even heard you. Um, mm. so the wingman in four corps was, was something that we, uh, was new to me when I got there, but I, I much appreciated it. <clears throat> Baron, did you have a question or anything you want to add to that? No. No. Okay. Uh, all right. Another question from uh, Niels Hansen. Um, it's kind of a big one, but I'll kind of wrap it up. I, you had gone back to Vietnam a few years ago. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. So his question was asking about that. What What was that like for you? Uh, to travel back there and to to meet with people after having obviously such a uh, you know an intense arguably traumatic experience of your lifetime being there well i we specifically went back a, a friend of mine <clears throat> in the movie industry wanted to do a documentary and uh, we we specifically went back to meet a vietnamese unit that i flew against from December of 71 through January of 72. And we had three engagements with those guys. The, the third one being my shoot down, uh, where I shot myself down with a, with a hang fire and a rocket pod. But um, we, we sought out through, through uh, 
shall we say, expatriates of the CIA who live in Hanoi knew these guys and were able uh, uh, to, to, to find them after a fellow named Merle Pibbenow, who wrote a wonderful book on the Easter invasion. I called Merle and said, hey, I'm trying to find out what unit I fought against on the 31st of December, 71. And then again in the uh, 20th of January when we lost some aircraft. And, and he said, let me check. And he called me back two days later and he said the, the uh, uh, 10th Company, 8th Battalion, 241st NVA Anti-Aircraft Regiment, and the guy that shot down Charlie Horse 26 was named Pham Nock On. I said, Merle, how in the hell do you know that? <laughs> he said, I, I translated their unit history for the CIA. I just looked it up. Wow. And so we found that company and my other friend and, and the former CIA guy who lives in Hanoi um, found those guys and arranged to have 17 of them who were surviving of the 40 or so that originally were there. Uh, meet us, my wife and I, and, and our little troop of, of Hollywood people, um, met us in a, in a cafe in Hanoi, and then we spent three weeks with those guys, and we spent the first two weeks uh, uh, North Vietnam. Uh, we went to Ho Chi Minh's camp where he fought the Japanese and, and uh, where he met, uh, you know, guys that would become pivotal in the Vietnam War, and uh, and then the final week, we actually drove down to the former South Vietnam and, and walked the ground around Quezon where these events occurred, literally walked the very coordinates of where 2-6 went down, where 2-5 went down, and, and where I went down. And uh, I'll tell you, those guys were terrific. The first question they asked of me the first night, the first thing, I had a little interpreter whose dad uh, was a was a Vietnamese uh, general during during the war, but she was a wonderful interpreter. And uh, the first thing they wanted to know is how old I was then. And and I told them I was 24 when when that tour happened. And all of a sudden, uh, they did the math and figured out I was 24. Most of them at the time were 18. And the the position, the, the familial position of uncle is a revered position in the Vietnamese culture. So they started calling me Uncle Hugh for the next three weeks. And, and when spoken in, in Vietnamese, it sounds unfortunately a lot like Uncle Ho. And, and I just had to go with that. And it was, it was fun. Every province we went to, of course, we had to be taken under control of the Communist Party representatives. And you can't do this and you can't do that. And when we went to one of our locations, I had a uniform with me. I had a fatigue uniform and a calf hat and it was hidden away. And, and uh, we had asked to wear it for part of the filming and they said no. And it was so darn hot that my communist minders stayed in the bus and went to sleep. I broke out my uniform. I broke out my calf hat. We have a wonderful group picture of me standing in the middle of all those guys and they're all wearing their uniforms. And so was I, they were not the least bit contentious with me. They were doing for their country, what I was doing for my country. There was no animosity. They treated my wife like the queen of England. It was just wonderful. Um, I have never 
harbored any hatred for the Vietnamese, uh, both friendly or enemy. And uh, that's the way that went. We we got to the point of, of, of getting that documentary ready to produce. And I, I will simply say that the person that was our money uh, supporter got hung up in the Me Too movement and uh, we lost mm. our backing. So the, the, the effort is still alive, but it's a, it's a search for money right now to, uh, to fund it, to fund the actual finishing of the documentary. It's hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of video. <coughs> we'll have to start a GoFundMe on that one. Do, do you find that your uh, opinions of what, what you just said, I never harbored any ill will to them. And, and so do, do you find that that's a universal? <coughs> do you find that that is uh, fairly um, exclusive to you with other people that served in Vietnam? You know, let me let me couch it the best way I can. Um, mm. The view that I take is from the view of a professional soldier mm. um, who stayed in for 26 years. Um, if you were the only guy in Toad Suck Ferry, Arkansas, that went off to Vietnam and you did your three years and got out, you probably look at this way differently than I did. Yeah. Um, I, there are guys out there that, that would not let Vietnamese soldiers, veterans, uh, uh, join in veterans activities here in Kansas City several years ago. We have a large Hmong population in Kansas City, Kansas. And there's a bunch of those guys that were that were special forces uh, 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 reconnaissance team members. And uh, some of them were Vietnamese paratroopers and uh, the local one of the local uh, Vietnam veteran groups would not let those guys participate. Those were the allies we fought with. That wasn't the yeah. enemy. Those were our guys. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've never understood that. I didn't. Uh, I quit that organization as a result of that. But hmm. um, I, I, I never bore any animosity. Um, I never saw our guy, you know, when I met those guys and we, we talked about that battle of 31 December, which was intense. We lost a Huey. We lost uh, a Cobra uh, unrelated to ground fire. And we lost a scout that was shot down. All of those aircraft, the scout and the Huey had, had KIAs. And I was talking to the guys that actually pulled the trigger on, on those aircraft. And when the Jolly Green finally came in and pulled the fellows out of the Huey, um, one of the guys said, you know, I was, I was maybe a hundred yards from the Jolly Green, the big helicopter, he called it. And, and he said, I could, I could see the men on the rope. And I asked him, I said, why didn't you shoot at, at the men on the rope? And he said, I didn't want them to stay. I wanted them to go away. Hmm. Now, that's a whole different viewpoint than than the one that other guys might take uh they were they were an anti-aircraft unit that uh that was positioning itself in the caisson area for the easter invasion and one of our aircraft on the 31st of december happened to fly directly over uh one of their locations very very low because we had an 800 foot ceiling that day and we were trying to get out to the the ash out to do some work 
and and the guy couldn't help himself and he opened up with a 14.5 and, and shot that Huey down. But with the firepower we bought brought to bear that day, I'm talking F4s, A5, Sky Raiders, Jolly Greens, we pummeled that area for hours and hours till we got the guys out. Ten Cobras at a time were out there. Um, they didn't. They didn't want any more of that. They wanted us to leave. <laughs> and and uh, so I, I was uh, I was taken with these guys. There was there were mischievous little bunch too. They would all come and and want to toast with me with what they called rice wine. Uh, it was a lot more than rice wine. I've had rice wine. This was rice wine with vodka in it. <laughs> would come to me individually to do a toast throughout every night. There's 17 of those guys and I'm doing 17 toasts and, and they're doing one. And they knew exactly what they were doing. Um, <laughs> they, they would grin at, uh, at uh, Zoe, who was my interpreter. And she said, you know what they're doing, don't you? And I said, of course I know what they're doing and I'm not going to let them win. I'm just going to, and I'm a teetotaler. I don't drink alcohol. I was <laughs> blasted the first week I was there. Uh, but uh, I, I have great respect for the manner in which they conducted their war. And uh, I have no animosity toward them whatsoever. The, the, the guys that made the decisions at the highest points on both sides bear the brunt of the responsibility, not the soldiers that fought it. And Barrett, can you imagine going back and meeting the guys who shot you like, you know, or, or shot you down or any of the adventures that you've had. It's just wild to think about, you know? I, yeah, actually I can't. Cause they were so, they were just disassociated, not even faces. Yeah. Like you, you never even saw their faces. They were, um, yeah, it almost, almost unreal sort of like you were kind of out there on your own. Um, but I like I was always uh, a little bit hesitant to pull the trigger in a lot of cases, just because I think my conscience always got the better of me. Like I always had, I always had an extra step of thought. Like, am I making the right decision here? And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's not so good. Like sometimes you just have to react. Um, you, yeah. you know, we had uh, we had a thing called dark horse rules of engagement: no women, no children. Uh, only, only opponents. Well, well, they all wore the same clothing. Um, yeah. Black, black pajamas, green pajamas, Ho Chi Minh sandals. Uh, uh, some wore hats, some didn't. I can honestly say I never saw a helmet on any of those guys. Um, and, and with me, I, I can tell you that I came across a lot of people that I could have shot that I didn't because it was obvious to me that they were non-combatants. We'd run into uh, uh, tree cutters all the time. Um, rarely women, mostly men and children would be out cutting down trees and they, they, they converted it into charcoal and that's how they made their living. But the areas, remember Vietnam was, was a country of pacified villages that had been pulled together. Anybody outside those villages was essentially a bad guy. That's um, very similar to our experience too. Yeah. But but you had to take a look at it. I found if if they would look at you, more than likely they were not a bad guy. Right. 
if they wouldn't That's look exactly at you, it. if they would avert their eyes, then uh, pretty much you're dealing with a bad guy. If they'd yeah. look at you and smile, that's absolutely not a bad guy. And there's no reason to, no reason to do that. Yeah, that's right. Very, very similar. Yeah. I, we used to fly up in the high mountains, you know, and you'd find one or two guys up there just in the middle of nowhere, just miles from anything. Yep. There's only two reasons they would be up there. They're putting a retrans site in, or they're put, you know, digging in an OP to observe movement, or they're just, chopping down trees to bring a load of wood back down for their campfire back in the, in the villa that night. Right. And on, sometimes on my, it's very difficult to tell. On my, uh, on my last tour, we were, we spent a time escorting ships from the South Vietnam up to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, up the Mekong river. And on one of those missions, I was fired at uh, by 51 Cal out of a pagoda. And we're flying around that thing, dropping concussion grenades on the outside, trying to get the guys to react to us. And about five or six Buddhist monks come flailing out the front door in a little gaggle. And three of the Buddhist monks had full heads of hair and the orange robes, and the others were all bald-headed. And my, my gunner was a kid named Jimmy Christie, and I said, Jimmy cut those guys with hair out of there and nail them. And he fired a burst of M60 and those, the real monks went every which direction uh, to get away from the, the NVA. Those were NVA gunners that had heads of hair. And I guess they didn't, they didn't think that, uh, that I could <laughs> tell they had hair and nobody else did. They didn't think that went through all the way. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, well, well, I guess we'll close up with this one. When, the first time I spoke with you, um, we were talking about writing and, and you said to me, you should write a book. And, and, and I didn't take that as, oh, Brian, you're very fascinating. You should write a book. But I think your point was for cathartic purposes or just for for history's sake, write. What was writing your book? What, what did that do for you? Why did you do it? How did it make you feel? And I know when we spoke last time, I think you were working on another one. Yeah, yeah, I, I got to tell you, I started Low Level Hell in San Antonio, Texas, after my wife died. Um, I uh, That is what motivated me to go back to Vietnam. I, I wrote the first two or three chapters, handwritten. Computers weren't even invented then. Um, um, but... That was the motivation, I, I think, to tell a story that, that nobody else had told. Uh, you know, Mason did the first uh, uh, widely accepted book, Chicken Hawk. And uh, uh, I, I just wanted to tell, you know, the, the reporters didn't hang out with us. I will tell you, with, with the guys in, in uh, Desert Storm, you had reporters following you around all over the place. All the reporters in Vietnam were in Saigon. Uh, writing their stories uh, from what people told them. Uh, I had one crew from CBS that came and flew with me, and he lasted maybe 30 minutes. And he said, take me home. Uh, he said, I can't believe you're flying this low, and, and, and we can see these people. And I said, well, yeah, that's what we do. And there's, I've got an actual picture taken from the front seat by this guy. Uh, he, he thought I was flying too close to the Cobra as we went out to the AO. I was... I was maybe 15 feet under his rotor blades 
and uh, just playing and scared the hell out of that guy. He wanted nothing to, to do with us, but <laughs> that's what got me started. And then when I, I, I went away from it for years and then I sat down uh, years later in, in the, uh, about 91 and said, I'm going to finish that. And I did. Uh, Bob Anderson, who's now passed away, was my co-writer, a wonderful gentleman. And uh, I am I am in the process of writing the sequel. <coughs> and I don't know what it's going to be called. Maybe Dark Horse 1-6 uh, with a caveat of a scout pilot returns to war. That's that's the working title right now. And I'm I've got all the Charlie Horse stuff on paper. And I'm starting to work on the on the movement to uh, back to Dark Horse. Um, it's amazing you can recall all the details yeah. that you're able to bring back. I I can't for the life of me. I struggle to remember names and places and and events and and it, you know it was half the time as that you're removed from your experiences. Well, it, it, it's obviously a life uh, tainted by the excessive use of alcohol. In your case. Uh, in, in mine, uh, got him. And mine, I am I am blessed with with a good memory. I also took a lot of notes and I kept a lot of documents that I thought unit rosters. If, if you are ever in a unit in the military, keep a dadgum unit roster because you're not going to remember all the names of all the guys uh, twenty years later. Um, yeah. yeah. But I I am blessed with a good memory and and a and a pretty excellent recall and uh and the uh, computer the computer has been a godsend in terms of documenting stuff that uh, that i want for the second book now you bring got, up a great I, point um and, and i wonder whether it changed during you know on your second tour and then your third tour because it did for me and i'm sure it's the same for brian i took a ton of pictures you know when it was new and fresh on my first deployment like i, I was keeping everything things that I regret not keeping are some of my operational maps and some of those things that you just can't replace. Um, but yeah. I, but I certainly took a lot of pictures by the second time it was kind of like routine. Oh, here I am again. And then by the third 12 months, it was like, ah, you know, I just can't wait to get out of here again. And I hardly took any pictures and didn't, you know, keep any memories. And that's a big regret of mine. Well, you can't, you don't think of it at the time that it's going to be significant to you later. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's life right now, whatever. I just want to get it over with. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the national archives was, was good to me in terms of finding old, uh, quarter calf after action reports and things I needed for low level health. Um, they're a little harder to deal with these days after COVID you have to make an appointment. You used to be able to just drive over to St. Louis and walk in and sit down and and work all day or two or three days now you got to make a uh, make an appointment um but i you know i think anybody that that experienced what we all experienced uh it it is it is it is a bit uh restorative uh it's cathargic uh uh but it also documents what what a lot of guys uh, uh would like to read about and see how things are different with what they do today and what we did then. Um, yeah. And I you know, we, I, were, we were cooler then we're not as cool nowadays as we were back then. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the greatest, uh, I, I only have one regret the death of the air cavalry troop as it existed in Vietnam to me is an absolute travesty. 
um, we had guns, we had lift, we had scouts, and we had infantry, an organic rifle platoon that was part of our unit that uh, if, if one of my guys got shot down, I could drop 28 combat veteran infantrymen on top of them, never less than 20 minutes or more than 20 minutes away. Uh, those guys would always stage when we went out. Uh, they'd move forward in the battle zone and stage at a friendly fire base or whatever. And then when something happened, uh, off they go with four Hueys loaded with riflemen. And uh, your own guns, your own scouts, your own lift, and your own infantry. Yeah. Uh, all in one unit and all commanded by a major. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the air cav troops or the, arm, the attack troops, that I commanded in Germany had 38 aircraft and I was a major. Uh, <laughs> I think that's now a regiment. Um, yeah. it, it's, uh, it, yeah. it's crazy. The number the, the yeah, and they've done the same thing with tanks, you know, a tank platoon used yeah. to be five and now it's three. And, and uh, I had 17 tanks and now the company has 10. And um, I, we just, we're, we were just smarter then. And, and I admittedly <laughs> probably better looking. Yeah, <laughs> that goes without well, saying. Well, you were saying about the experiences, you know, I was thinking about it today. All three of us in the show have purple hearts. Granted, you have three, I believe. <laughs> I so you got us outmatched. I do. But uh, but it's not a contest. So I could have had six, but I got to the point I quit asking for them. All right. Well, yeah, that's one does. Well, that's one you should never ask for. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't brag about it. <laughs> are you, uh, are you still flying? Do you still fly anything? Well, I still, I'm current. Um, and, and I, my medical is current. In fact, I just got my medical in, uh, in August. Um, th these days I'm very lucky to be able to fly an OH six that resides out in Western Kansas. Um, a, uh, a buddy of mine has a crop dusting service out there and he's an old, uh, uh, 11th ACR guy that got, got himself totally shot up in an OH-6, Gary Worthy. And he owns an OH-6 that, uh, that, that I get to fly now and again. And then, uh, down in, uh, in Mount Pleasant, Texas, there's a wonderful gentleman who, who owns 78, uh, flyable warbirds, including a Huey, a Cobra and an OH-6. Wow. And, and I get to, oh yeah, it's, it's, uh, amazing is an understatement. It's good you to know, have when, friends. When you're a guy that's got P-51s, Corsairs, Sea Furies, B-25s, Albatrosses, um, T-34, Charlie models, turbines, uh, all, it's the Mid-America Aviation Museum. I encourage people to, to go look at it. Um, and uh is that down so by houston by any chance it, north texas uh north texas, texas oklahoma border yeah okay. mid-america aviation museum and uh i i encourage folks to uh to look that place up it's amazing and they're all flyable that's the mm -hmm. amazing part they yeah. all fly wow yeah, I'll have to check that out. Next time you go fly a loach, you need to let me know. I will I will find my way out there. I want to I want to see it. See the master at work. Well, yeah, find me cool. one find me one in your area. I'll come fly it. <laughs> All right. I'll look around. <laughs> 
Well, I think uh, we're going on an hour and a half, so we'll go ahead and uh, uh, wrap it up here. Um, again, it's great to see you again and speak with you again. And uh, I'm sure we could spend hours and hours and uh, cover a lot of ground, but uh, we'll leave it open for you to return again soon. And, uh, and I'd be I'd be glad to. I, I want to say I want to say one thing because we sure. you have a you have a person in your audience right now who's very special to me. Uh, and that's Joe Vad's daughter, Lisa. Um, hmm. She's up in Nova Scotia. I suspect it's cold there. Uh, yeah. Lisa was two years old when Joe was killed. And uh, um, I, I, won't, I won't go into the detail now, but uh, get on your Google and look up Joe Vad's ring and read the story of, of how um her apartment was burgled and 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 her father's uh, flight school ring was among the things stolen and by an act of of uh, uh of, of divine providence that ring fell out on the on the uh, parking lot of a gas station in, in Halifax Nova Scotia and through a series of events it was it was given to an American naval officer at the uh, consulate there and a bunch of guys, myself included, were were hit up on the internet. Does anybody know a guy named Joe Vad? And I, of course, said, "Well, of course I did." And and uh, I said, "I know exactly where that ring belongs, and I know if it's in Halifax, that's that's daughter Lisa's ring." And and we were able to maneuver that ring back into Lisa's hands. Um, and I don't think it's ever going to leave her hands again. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting story, and, and I won't go into all the details, but Joe Vad's ring, and you can Google it, and it comes up uh, as a uh, Vietnam helicopter pilot's flight crew member network article. <clears throat> but uh, Joe Vad is the guy that brought us the name Low Level Hell. He's the guy that made the patch. Uh, he changed uh, uh, everything from our attitude to our apparel. And uh, I'm eternally grateful that I've had Lisa in my life. And she comes to every reunion. Um, uh, and, and she's she's a wonderful member of the Dark Horse group. And, and I know she's listening. And, and uh, that's my buddy Joe right there. We lost him uh, 6 November 69 along with crew chief uh, Jim Downing. Um, mm. So uh, anyway, great. It's a great story. It, it's it's a, it'll pull on your heart. It did mine. Still does. Um, but there you have it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, for that. And uh, Lisa, if you're if you are listening, uh, sorry for your loss, obviously. And uh, thank you for for continuing to support uh, the community. And um, yeah, I guess we'll wrap it up there. Barrett, thanks for, for joining in. I know you, we've been talking about uh, this particular episode for a long, long time. Uh, trying yeah, to I, I really on. appreciate you. Uh, really appreciate the invite. And Colonel Mills, it's great to talk with you again. Uh, been a long time. And uh, yeah, always enjoy listening to you recount uh, the days of the, the days of old and and set up our lineage and you know those of us that got to pass that lineage on it's a great honor to to have you in with us i i appreciate that prepared and loyal um prepared where, where are you uh, where are you hanging out these days 
I know where Brian. I retired last year. I'm 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 still in Enterprise. Okay. Well, I I get down there on occasion. Um, every once in a okay. while, I get to come and talk to guys graduating, and and uh, I've got I've got friends there. Uh, if you ever need a good lawyer, Dwayne Hartwick. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, knock former on wood. Cobra, Cobra pilot, Apache pilot, uh, 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 military order of the Purple Heart representative. Dwayne is a retired municipal judge there in Enterprise. And if you ever get sideways with the law, that's the guy you need to go see. All right. Well, I'll I'll tell him I know you, and Please hopefully do. I need you know won't need a good doctor or a good lawyer anytime soon. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, well guys, you it's, like you it's do. been it's been fun. I'm happy to do this anytime. It's a, it's an honor uh, to keep the yeah. memory alive. Yeah, absolutely. The honor is ours. Um, yeah, stand by. I'm going to shut this down and then uh, we'll, we'll close up offline. Hopefully I remember to turn off the stream this time. Um, but I just want to say thanks to everybody who who listened and watched the show and, uh, and hung out. And of course, people that watch this uh, later on. And then we will uh, take this audio, make it the normal podcast as usual. Jake, thank you for uh, looking up pictures. I think you found one more picture I didn't get to show. I'll just throw that up there real quick. Here's uh, this looks like one of your old birds. Is this is that right? Is he still with us, Colonel Mills? No, that that, yours? It, it's oh yeah, that's yeah, that's one of mine. That's me sitting in the in the rear cockpit. Oh, okay. Uh, well, there you go. That's uh, Mike King sitting in the front. That's his airplane, Disciple of Peace. Uh, this is third tour. Uh, it, it's an interesting shot in that that is a uh, seventh of the first uh, aircraft that we got, and we painted our stuff over the top of it. So you see the silver spur underneath the CAV symbol, and yeah. you see the... Uh, um, the dark horse stuff painted on it, but that's Tim Brennan, uh, with the Pepsi Cola uh, rare for Tim to be drinking a Pepsi Cola. And I'll leave that at that, but, uh, that's me <laughs> sitting in the back and, and, uh, Mike King up front, dark horse, uh, one seven on my third tour. Look at all those mustaches, boy, the yeah. army these days would just lose their mind. I was, I was 24. Um, uh, I think Mike was about the same, and then Tim maybe a year or two older. Uh, I think Tim's a lawyer in the Atlanta area now, I believe, and and uh, Mike is in Atlanta too. I'm I'm in contact with Mike uh, uh, pretty regular, but I have I've lost contact with Tim. If anybody finds him, have him come home. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we will shut it down there. Uh, thanks again, you guys. Stand by. And uh, for everybody watching, uh, thanks for for stopping by, and we'll we'll talk to you guys later. And uh, I'm in I'm in Kansas I'm in Kansas City. If anybody shows up, give me a shout. I'm not hard to find. All right, all right, scouts out. All right, thank you.